So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to be highlighting Joseph this morning. Uh, in just a few minutes, we'll dive into that chapter. But in the 1930s, there was a theologian and ordained minister named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And though he was young, he was brilliant. And so he started to, to garner some uh, notoriety first in Germany and then more abroad. And he had the opportunity to go and travel and study and even teach in the United States. And so this is in his, in his 20s, he's able to uh, be able to be even a professor. And so while he's doing that, he's growing and learning. And then he goes back to Germany to become an ordained minister and to serve in the population in Germany. Now, if you're familiar with history at all, uh, you might re recognize that the 1930s, Germany is undergoing an incredible political upheaval. Right, so Hitler has, has started to gain power and then as gaining power is gaining momentum in leading his people, his nation, to put the, the weight of all of their suffering uh, on a, a hateful mission to then go out and conquer the lands around them, ultimately, perhaps the world. Now, there wasn't everybody that was in support of this, but, but the German people were in a fervor about his leadership. And Bonhoeffer was one that was against it. And so for the first several years, he was pushing against it using radio pro programs and, and underground churches and, and other resistance movements to try to push against the political influence that Hitler was gaining in Germany. And in about 1939, when he recognized that there was a tipping point to head into what would eventually become the World War II, Bonhoeffer had the opportunity to flee. Many other Germans had started to flee going into countries like the UK and America to escape what was coming in their country. And so he had the opportunity and chose to go to New York City. And in New York City, he had, through relationships that he had, he stayed for about two weeks. And then he, he realized he had to change. He realized that maybe he'd made a mistake. And he put it this way when he wrote a letter to one of his mentors about the decision to return to Germany. I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Bonhoeffer had the opportunity to run away from the hardship and the trial and the struggle that was undoubtedly coming and already being experienced in Germany and eventually would scatter people across Western Europe. And he chose to go back into that. He chose to leave the safety and comfort of, of academic and religious life in the United States and travel back into Germany and continue to press into growing a Christian community that was in resistance to what the Nazis and Hitler were doing that was in resistance to what they were seeing as anti-Christian and anti-God. And so what he chose is the cost that he would have to pay. Ultimately for him, it was the cost of his own life. It was worth it because he had to participate in what God was calling him to do. What cost are you willing to pay to follow Jesus? What price is too high? Put another way, what are you willing to lose in Luke 14, Jesus has this crowd gathering around him and they're following him as he travels in his ministry. And he turns around and he says to them, count the cost, pick up your cross. Unless you're willing to lose everything and follow me, you won't gain anything. 
As we've been going through this series in the summer, we've been highlighting people in the Old Testament primarily that, that are focused on, on the promises that God has made them. And then in the life that they live, God continues to, continues to keep his covenants throughout all of the circumstances and decisions and failures that they make, right? Because God is faithful to the promises that he's made despite people's actions. And as we dive into Joseph's story, we're gonna, we're gonna really fly over. So if you can imagine being on a plane, we're gonna start where we take off, right? So we're gonna spend a good amount of time laying the foundation of who Joseph is. And then we're gonna fly over and land the plane on the other end. And as we fly over the rest of the story, there's a lot that we're not gonna cover. And so I wanna encourage you to go back sometime this week and read the whole thing from Genesis 37 to the end of the book. It's about 13 chapters and it covers a ton, but, but it's a incredible story of the sacrifice and the suffering that Joseph endured for others. And so if you do have your Bible open, follow along as I start to read in uh, chapter 37 and verse one. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad uh, report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So we have is, is just a reminder of who these guys are, right? So last few weeks, we've talked about Abraham and Sarah and how they were promised a son and ultimately that son became Isaac. And then Isaac had a son whose name was Jacob. And now Jacob, we're seeing as the father in this story, has a son named Joseph. But not only Joseph, he has many other sons. In fact, he has 12 total. So 10 older brothers to Joseph. And as Jacob is is seeing his son grow up, and and at this point we jump in when Joseph is about 17, it's pretty clear that Joseph is the favorite. It's pretty clear that there's something unique about Joseph and and Jacob's relationship, and his brothers see it. And so Joseph goes and tells his his dad a bad report about how they're acting in the flock, how they're shepherding. They're not doing it exactly like dad always told them to do it. And so he goes and tells on them. I mean, I don't know if you're an older sibling or not, but maybe you have that same relationship with your younger siblings. Maybe you've been the younger sibling that does that. And his dad shows favoritism to him in a bunch of ways. But one thing that it notes here is that he has this coat of many colors. Right? And the more exact translation might actually be a coat with long sleeves. So what you have is this circumstance which, which uh, Joseph is given this gift from his father that none of his other brothers get. And it's a gift that shows a unique attention to actual generosity and, and, and love maybe from his father because with this coat of long sleeves or many colors, maybe referring to a variety of skins or whatever it is, it shows a, an emphasis on material. Right, and quite literally, the material it takes to make long sleeves is more than the material it takes for short sleeves, right? There's, there's nothing here. And because it takes more material, it takes more time to make. It takes more money or, or resources to provide. So what Joseph is receiving is a gift from his father that shows the value that he sees in him. But none of his other brothers get that. They start to hate him for it. Maybe this is that teenage back and forth banter of hormones and just frustration, but it keeps getting worse. 
Verse five. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. See what Joseph does is he pokes the bear, right? He starts to recognize this relationship and what he has now is a dream and maybe it's a dream from God and maybe it's his own youthful pride, but what he goes and does, he tells his brothers about this dream where they're all working in a field and as they're binding the things that they're harvesting together, he has this image of these things that are from his brother bowing down to his, right? This image of him being the honored one. You can see where for his older brothers, this, this would start to be a problem. This would start to be a recognition of, of their own very worst fear. See, the reality is, is in their culture and in, in most ancient cultures, the firstborn was the one to be honored. And in that case, it would be Reuben. Reuben should get the fancy coat. Reuben should get his father's love. Reuben would get the inheritance. Reuben would be the patriarch one day. And if not Reuben, then maybe the second or the third, like if Reuben had died young. But not Joseph. Joseph was like the 11th. I mean, in other ancient cultures, there's names like Septima that became popular at one point. Septima literally means seven. They just stopped naming their kids and just gave them a number. I mean, that's actually my name too, shoot. Anyway, um, and then what about all the other brothers? Right, so what, what their own recognition, what their own fear might be here is, is they're starting to realize Joseph is, thinks he's so special. And maybe this is a message from God and maybe it's just the pride of a teenager, but, but Joseph is telling us now that, well, I think we're gonna, you're gonna bow to me. I think it's worse, right? It, it says three times so far already that they hated him. In verse nine, it says, they, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his, and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And is his brothers and, and his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. So he, this next dream, it's not just his brothers. Now he starts to see this, this imagery using stars and suns and moon that, that maybe even his father and mother are gonna bow to Joseph at some point. Keeping in mind that we have this imagery of dreams being a potential oracle, right? Something that God might be telling him. And at the same time, his brothers receiving this as foolishness. It says that they are jealous of him. That word carries this intense bitter anger in them. It's raging inside of them now, right? They, they hate him and they hate him even more. And now that they're bitterly jealous of him. Furious. This Joseph. Who does he think he is? In verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. 
And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And Joseph said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So just to keep in mind here, you may have remembered from even back when Abraham, when we talked about him and down through the line, Joseph lives in a family of essentially sojourners, right? People that, that have uh, no like cities or building structure, they have tents and they do that because they're maintaining livestock, primarily sheep. And these sheep need to travel in order to eat, right? They're going along these uh, desert places, but there's also grasses where they can feed. And so they're taking them through the hill country of the Middle East and, and making sure that they can feed throughout the year. And so his brothers have gone so that they can go uh, shepherd them in another part of the area where there would be more grass for them. And now his father, having put up, set up his tent, having, having all of his other uh, belongings and his, his servants and, and the rest of his family where they are in Hebron, sends Joseph to go and check on things. Let's see how they're doing. How's the flock? How are your brothers? And so he travels 60, 70 miles to find his brothers near Dothan. Searching for them, seeking after them. And his brothers see him as he comes. Verse 18, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then he will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he, might rest, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So as Joseph is approaching his brothers and the flock, they see him from afar and they make this plan. Far away from their father, far away from their family, far away from anybody else that would even know who they are, they're able to finally get rid of the problem. Joseph. And so they hatch this plan that they're gonna be able to, to take him and they'll kill him and they'll throw him in this pit. This, these pits are, are cisterns, these large holes that would have been used to store water from the rainy season. And so fairly deep, even used as prisons at sometimes, uh, these makeshift prisons. And so what their plan is is to beat him up kill him, or at least leave him for dead in the bottom of this pit where an animal or exposure would get rid of him because they hated him. Because they hated him. And the only solution was to get rid of him. The oldest, Reuben, recognizing that this is a little crazy, decides that maybe what he can do is keep them from at least killing him and then he can go back and save him out of that pit later. So he convinces them, hey, don't do that. Don't kill him. Just throw him down there. 
and then you won't have any blood on your hands. So what they do is when Joseph approaches, they strip him of his robe, the robe that his father gave him. And the word there, it actually means like skinning an animal. So they're tearing the clothes off of him, leaving him naked in the bottom of this pit. The problem is solved. But it doesn't stop there. Humiliated and probably still beaten at some degree, uh, the, the brothers have a new idea. In verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. No remorse. They just left their brother for dead. It's time for a meal. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So having mercy just for a moment, Judah realizes, hey, this is our own brother. We should be, we should be cautious about doing this, right? We, we, should, we should be careful about doing this. It, it, rather than have this blood on our hands, Let's be generous and kind to him. Let's sell him to be a slave. It's not done, right? Joseph, Joseph moves into this now, uh, oppor- or not opportunity, Joseph moves into this new circumstance of where he's, he's taken by these traders into Egypt. His brothers are free from him. But this is the cost that Joseph pays. Right? Joseph is, is the favored son. He, he, gets, he gets the robe from his dad. He gets the honor from his dad. He gets the love from his dad. He, he gets all of the blessing from his dad and he showers it upon him. And now he is alone, a slave. Right? And, and he's not just coming into uh, this life as, as a shepherd, right? The reality is, is that this family was proven pretty well, even as sojourners. Right? Abraham at one point had so much wealth that he had to part ways with his nephew because their flocks were too big for the land to, to support. In other words, there had too many animals, and so they had to part ways because they were too wealthy. And so maybe they're traveling and sojourning from land to land, taking care of their flocks, but, but they had wealth, wealth enough for a coat of many colors to give to Joseph and wealth enough for all these flocks and all these family members and the servants on top of them. And so now Joseph went from a family that had servants to a servant himself. Joseph went from a family that had had a promise and a covenant with God to lonely and alone headed to a foreign land he'd never been to. Joseph went from the favored son to a nobody. This is the cost that he had to pay. But God doesn't leave him there. In fact, God doesn't forget him. And if you go back and read later this week, there's this phrase that's gonna keep popping out to you. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with Joseph. So Joseph gets sold into slavery and he goes into Egypt and he ends up in the home of of Pharaoh's or the king of Egypt's uh, official named Potiphar. It doesn't say exactly what he does in the house, but whatever he does, he does it well. And God seems to bless everything that Joseph touches, 
right? And so as he continues to serve and do what his responsibilities are, Potiphar keeps giving him more and more responsibilities. And so he continues to to get more and more opportunity to rise in rank as a servant until the point where the only person above him in the whole house is Potiphar himself. And so he moves from a slave to a servant, but, but one of, of high standing, of, of appreciation from his, his owner, the one that, that Potiphar honors him. And, and it seems clear that Joseph's God, the God that, that made a covenant with, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, seems to be blessing Joseph. And he honors him for that. And he gives him more and more responsibility for that. And we see clearly that jo- Joseph hasn't forgotten about that God either. The Bible continues throughout these, throughout these chapters to say the Lord was with Joseph, but Joseph hasn't forgotten about him either because what happens is that while he's serving in the house, Potiphar's wife notices, you know, Joseph's young and he's handsome and she desires to be with him. And so she starts making advancements to him for her to sleep with him or for him to sleep with her giving invitations and he, and he pushes back saying he wouldn't do that, saying that he wouldn't dishonor Potiphar and he wouldn't dishonor his God. Joseph who lost everything, Joseph who, who was taken out of his family, taken out of his home, taken and sold into slavery, whose brothers abandoned him for dead or worse, who had no reason to continue to worship the Lord except that he believed it. And so because of that, he rejects Potiphar's wife. But she doesn't quit. She continues to to make advancements. She continues to try to draw him in. In verse 11 of chapter 39, it says this. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So what we have is this story where Joseph has been neglected and left for dead and, and then sold into slavery and worked his way up to like the second most important person in this household. And he has a decision to make. Continue to pursue the righteousness of God or give in to whatever temptation is bearing under him from Potiphar's wife. And he pursues the righteousness of God. And the reality that happens is that now Potiphar's wife makes up this story that he came into her to basically try and to rape her. And as a result of that, Jacob, or excuse me, Joseph gets thrown into prison and then spends the next few years in prison. He has a, a glimmer of hope where he interprets dreams for some of Pharaoh's servants and one of them dies, but the other one gets returned to Pharaoh and, and, and has a seat next to Pharaoh as the cupbearer hoping that maybe he'll remember him. And yet then for the next two years, silence, rotting in prison. 
the Bible reminds us, but the Lord was with him. See, Joseph finally gets word from Pharaoh that, um, hey, will you come and interpret my dreams? Will you come and tell me what these things mean? And what Joseph does is he interprets Pharaoh's dreams and and he has this realization that what God is warning Pharaoh of is an incoming famine, a famine that will not only impact Egypt, but will impact lands far and wide. And and this famine is gonna be painful and long. And so what he encourages Pharaoh to do is to prepare for that famine by storing away food as the plentiful harvests are continuing so far. And as Pharaoh continues to listen to him, Joseph gets, again, elevated to this position of honor. And like I said, we're flying over pretty high right now, so you can go back and read later. But, but when Joseph does this, he gets elevated to a new position among Pharaoh. And again, the Lord is with him and he's blessing him and, and Pharaoh sees this and he honors Joseph. And so Joseph has this, this relationship with him where he gets, again, responsibility and authority and people know who he is and he has servants of his own and he marries and he has a family. And all of these things are blessed to him again. And then the famine comes. People have food and they're eating in Egypt. But outside, people are starving. These nomads and sojourners and tribes are, are, are starving because of the famine in their lands. And, and one of those tribes is Joseph's family. And they hear that in Egypt, they, they might have some grain. So Jacob sends his sons to go and see. And as through this process unfolds, Jacob, or see, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and, and his brothers repent, but fear of what, he's, what they've done to him. And, and they bring their father and, and Joseph provides for them land in Egypt in, in the region of Goshen and, and continues to make sure that they have food and all that they need for their flocks and their family. And, and Joseph has done all of these things for them. And then Jacob dies and his brothers are convinced this is it. This is the time when judgment comes. This is the time when Joseph is gonna use his authority as the right hand of Pharaoh to bring judgment upon us. He was gracious to us because our father was with us, but now he's, he's gone and there's no reason for Joseph to have forgiven us. That's pretty human, right? I mean, if we think about that, if we were in the circumstances that Joseph was in, if we had been, been stripped and left for dead, but then, oh no, it's better to actually just sell you into slavery and, and have to go through all of these things because his brothers who despised him, who hated him, put him through all of this, this pain and suffering. If, if all of those things happened to us, right? If, if we lost loved ones, and, and, and if we lost family, and if we lost our wealth, if we lost our house, if we, if we lost everything that we had, and then built it up and lost it again, and then sat in prison, wouldn't we be bitter towards the people that did that to us? Wouldn't we be angry or frustrated, even if it was ourselves that did that to us? Wouldn't we be furious with ourselves? How did I do that? Why did I make those mistakes? Or, or how could they do that? How could they have done these things to me? And look at all that I have done over these many years now. All that I have suffered, all the hardship that I've endured, all the work that I had to do, all the things I could do, except the Lord was with him. Joseph should have been bitter and bombastic and judgmental. When his brothers came, he should have chopped their heads off or something. He was merciful gracious. And so when they came to him after their father had died, expecting his judgment, 
He continued to show grace. And his response to their fear is this. It's in uh, chapter 50. It's the last chapter of Genesis. In verse 19 and 20, it says this. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For I am, in the, am I in the place of God? Am I to be the judge? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph had this opportunity to realize with with everything that he'd endured, with everything that he'd suffered, God had a plan that was bigger than his own life. God had a plan that was broader than just his own satisfaction, his own contentment, his own happiness, his own experiences. God had a plan that was for more people and for much more time. See, what Joseph began to realize is that God was with him. And even in the midst of his suffering and even in the midst of his cost and even in the midst of his pain, God was working. And that plan was something that that God worked out to save the lives of many. It It saved Egyptians and it saved people from other tribes that were traveling to get the grain during this famine. And it saved his own family, the family that God had made a covenant with. See, the reality of this story is that when we look at the brokenness of people, certainly Joseph wasn't perfect, but the broken people are his brothers. His brothers that were filled with hatred and bitterness, his brothers that conspired against him, his brothers that had not forgotten what they'd done, who'd lied to their father about what happened to Joseph, his brothers who who were so fearful of his judgment that they cowered before him. Joseph showed grace. See, the reality that we experience in this life is, is that we to recognize our own sinfulness, right? We recognize our own brokenness. We recognize the own suffering that we've caused others and maybe we haven't done the things that they did to their brother. And I certainly feel guilty of a lot of pain and hurt that I've caused other people. Probably you do too. The beauty of the, of the gospel is this, is that while Joseph was willing to suffer, even to the point of almost dying in a pit, Jesus came and was willing to suffer to the point of death. Well, Joseph was willing to to endure the wrath of of Pharaoh and Potiphar and and suffer in prison. Jesus was willing to endure the wrath of God. Well, Joseph was willing to suffer for for a decade and and, and whatever the cost was, Jesus was willing to suffer the cost of all of our sin, the cost of everything in this world. He went from from on a throne in heaven to hanging on a cross and dying for us. He was willing to give up everything that we might have life and have it abundantly. See, the reality is is that when we're talking about Luke 14, Jesus Jesus is saying, what cost are you willing to pay to follow me? We can look at examples like Joseph and say that God works through suffering. God is willing to work through our own cost. He, he wants something more. He has a plan. And the cost that he's calling us to pay to follow Jesus is one that is bigger than ourselves, right? The cost that he's calling us to pay is one that shows worship to God, but also is intended to reach others. Right, that's the reality that we see in Joseph's suffering, is that as God was shaping his heart through this process, as God was, was showing him mercy and grace, as, as, God, as God was blessing him even in the midst of his trial and, and pain, and he experienced pain, 
Joseph was learning to worship. What cost are you willing to pay to worship God? What cost are you willing to pay to have your heart shaped, to have your, your idols removed from you, to have, to have your pride pulled out from you, to, to be shaped and sanctified, to be, to be more like Jesus? Right, the reality is, is that we don't think about that very often, probably. Right, we look at a cost as though we're, we show up on a Sunday morning and, and we sing our worship songs together and we pray together and, and we give glory to God and that's what worship is and that's a part of it. But what Jesus is challenging us, what the example of Joseph is challenging us is that there's more to be paid in order that others might know him. Are you willing to suffer for that? Just as an example, uh, we, every Sunday we highlight giving, right? George did it just, just a minute ago. And, and as we think about giving, the first and foremost, the reality is, is that this is something that God does throughout almost all of his book, all of this, the scriptures, right? It starts uh, as an example in some ways from Abraham to Melchizedek, a priest in the Old Testament, but especially when he establishes Israel and his people, there's priests that are, that are leading the community in worship. And so giving is an opportunity for the community to come around these people who help point them to God, to help remind them to God, whether they have a, a tabernacle, a tent where they meet, or eventually a temple that they build, God uses his offerings, right? And, and it's animal offerings and it's grain offerings and it's money and, and all of these things to support the ministry to his people, right? To remind them of their worship. And it's true. We, we experience that here at PBC, right? One of the things that we do with our offering is it supports the things that we do, whether that be staff or supplies. It helps kids have toys in their classrooms and it also helps uh, me have food on my table at night. Right? It enables me to focus on ministering and praying and teaching you so that, so that you, can do, uh, you can grow in your faith uh, and so that our kids can grow in theirs. But that's just the start. Right? The purpose of, of that offering is, is only in part to provide for what we do. And I think the really amazing thing that God does, and we see this in examples in the Old Testament and in the New, right? The Old Testament starts with a tithe, 10%. Uh, it continues on. It doesn't just, just stop there, right? 10% goes to the priests, the church, right? But then 10% is for, for the needy, the, the hungry. 10% is for this, these other people, the widows and the orphans. Like, and then uh, don't, don't harvest your whole field, but leave the corners available. Make sure that there's always something for someone who's hungry. Make sure there's always something for someone in need, right? What God is trying to establish is new hearts. Hearts of generosity, hearts that, that aren't just self-centered and self-focused, hearts that aren't just Joseph, look at me in my robe, but Joseph, the one who's willing to suffer for his brother's sake. That's what God is trying to establish with our giving, right? When we give to church, it's just the start. It's the start of, of engendering a heart in us that worships God with everything that we have. It, it's like, honestly, it's like this. It's like working out. Uh, and, and maybe you love to work out, maybe you hate it, but, but I'll tell you what happens the once or twice a month when I work out, um, right? I, I'll, I'll work out and then I feel like pretty good about myself. But then if I can make that run like a few days in a row or whatever, or if I can kind of get it consistent, then it starts to impact like, whew, I should probably drink more water, Right? You know, and then, and then I'm probably gonna, I start sleeping more. I, I gotta get my rest because, you know, I gotta work out in the morning or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, I really shouldn't eat that bag of Skittles. Um, it impacts everything that follows, right? It starts with maybe it's 30 minutes on a Tuesday, but then it cont continues to carry over through it all. 
What God is giving us is an example of sacrifice that calls us to worship him, that changes our hearts, that we are willing to suffer for, for the glory of him, but also for the sake of others. Because what Joseph's suffering was, wasn't just to shape his heart so that he could worship God, but through that worship, it put him in a place that he could provide life to many and through whom God could provide grace to the family that he had his covenant with. And that's the reality of who we are, right? As a church, we aren't just people who, who okay, we write checks and we show up on Sunday, uh, right? We are people who wanna be a part of a community. And that's a cost that's probably a lot more significant than going online and make a donation. Right? I think all of us should, should weigh uh, the reality of what we give financially, but what it takes for us to serve to be in the ministries here on Sunday mornings and, and even more in, in the community groups throughout the week. That is a real cost. To build relationships with people, to care for people, to pray for people, to ask someone how they're doing and then actually mean it, right? Not just, how are you doing? Good to see you, move on. But like actually ask what's going on in their lives. Figuring out how to point them more to Jesus, right? Through Bible studies and through prayer, through, through our paychecks and, and, and through everything else that we do, through the gifts that God has given us, that is what it looks like to be a church. And that's a life of sacrifice in a world that tells you to think for yourself, live for yourself, everything is about you, forget everybody else. The sacrifice that Jesus made for us is that he was willing to give it all that we could have it all. He asked us to open up our hands and say, take whatever you want back. What price are you willing to pay to follow Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for this day. God, I am grateful for this church, for a church that desires to be a community that loves one another, that's willing to sacrifice and suffer and serve one another, God. A church that uh, even this morning, I witnessed uh, two people praying for someone uh, who was wounded, who was hurt um, physically, God, and, and just of their own accord because they care for one another. God, we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts, hearts of humility and worship that long to be in your presence. Hearts that recognize that our worship is something that uh, is, is for your glory, Lord, but is also bears witness in this world to who you are to others. God, we pray that you would work in our hearts to reach others, to lead others, to teach others, Father, to know you, to know your love, to know your mercy, and to know your grace, God. We pray that our whole lives would be a sacrifice to you, Father, that we would build upon uh, the love of Jesus to serve others in that name. Amen.